0: Jason, welcome. Um, everybody, welcome to, to the seventh episode, no, eighth episode, actually, of uh, Product Market Fit Cafe. I'm here interviewing founder and CEO of Paperless Parts. Um, we'll get into a second what they do. Uh, quickly about Product Market Fit Cafe. I'm a second time founder myself. Uh, my company has raised over 85 million in capital um, with one exit behind me, and I get to interview the smartest people, people who are much smarter than me, about how they've reached Product Market Fit. So it's a selfish endeavor, but it also helps all founders out there um, going into product market fit. So, without further delay, Jason, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I don't know if uh, I don't know if I'll fall into that category of smarter than you, but we uh, together we'll, we should have a good conversation. I appreciate Not you having hard, me.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining. <laughs> um, why don't we get into it? Can you introduce yourself and uh, what does your company do?
1: Yeah, so my name is Jason Ray. I'm one of the co-founders, the CEO at Paperless Parts. Paperless Parts is a software company designed for job shops and contract manufacturers. Um, These are, I I guess you would call them um, discrete component manufacturers. So they are making devices that go into rocket engines, medical devices, automobiles, semiconductors, you name it. And satellites, so really cool stuff, Um, all the way to consumer, so Bose headphones, things like that. So these, these shops, they run in a very antiquated way. They're generally managed by very intelligent people who have 30 years of experience and they understand how their business works, but they do it all on pen and paper, Excel spreadsheets. And so we built a software solution that allows them to leverage all the amazing things that the internet and modern software bring to business today. Um, But we did it in a way that is highly specific to the tasks that job shop manufacturers have to complete. Um, And we started with quoting and estimating, and we've moved a little bit further upstream into the customer relationship management. Now we're moving a little bit further downstream into um, order management and purchasing and just making sure that that front office the business function in manufacturing is supported with the best tools possible
0: yeah great okay um and just sorry no no go ahead please yeah no and just before we started recording where i I was kind of like wait let's go on there um how would you define product market fit
1: Oh, you know what? It's something that we talk about all the time. Um, I, think, I, I think the way I would define product market fit comes back to um, push and pull in the market and the net promoter score of your customers. And I think it's easy to be deceived by this. I, I have a fairly healthy insecurity around product market fit. Like, I think, I think a lot of times software is if it's not evolving, it's dying. And so the question is once you've achieved, I think people think it's a finite thing. You achieve product market fit and you're done. And the reality is it's like getting up on a surfboard. Like the wave is just starting. Like you still have to stand on the board. You still have to ride the wave and it is very easy to get crushed by a wave. And so That's in my mind, that's product market fit. Like once you achieve it, you got to maintain it. You have to continue to advance it. You have to stay up with what the industry wants. And especially in an industry like ours, you can achieve product market fit. But as soon as manufacturers got exposed to modern software, they're like, well, why can't you do this? And what about that? And I wish we could have this. And oh my gosh, we'd pay you so much more if you could do this. And it's like, okay, so do we have product market fit? Well, maybe, maybe we have product market fit at you know, a 20k ACV, but not a 50k ACV, you know, and that's different. So I, I, I think I always have a hard time defining exactly what product market fit is. It's kind of a feeling. I mean, we have 500 customers today. Um, we've very low churn. We were month to month in contracts up to this year. So for the last five years, six years, we've been month to month. So having having a product where customers can leave you if they want to, and they choose to not leave, that that was an indicator to us that we were creating more value than we extract. And that's, that's you know, I, when we talk to our product teams, that is a core goal of our company. We never want to be in a position where we feel like we're extracting more value out of our customers than we're creating for them in the long run. So I don't know if that's the traditional um, definition of product market fit, but that's that's how we've been thinking about it.
0: No, love it. Love it. I, I think everybody has their own definition of it, but I love how you mentioned how you basically broke it down into like different phases of the company and stuff. Um, I'm often thinking about that as well. Actually, why don't we, why don't we actually dig into what was your, like, what did pre-product market fit look like moving into the, the first phase? Like you said, like this is the initial product market fit before we'll start to advance it, you know?
1: Yeah. So I, I think there's, I, I love you use the word phases because This is something we've been talking about as a team. Uh, Very much zero to one is, in my mind, a brute force phase. So it's rough, right, rapid prototyping, ideation, iteration. You're doing things that are completely unnatural and not scalable to try to figure out how to go from zero to one. That's like zero to one million. And that's generally one or two people. It's like you and a co founder and a really awesome software engineer. And, you know, like I am a shitty designer. Like I'm just bad at it. Like I'm not a good designer, but I've made all of our mocks and all of our wireframes and all of our user flows and wrote all the user stories for the first two years. And yeah, maybe we would have moved faster if we had someone who was smarter than me. We, we definitely would have. But, you know, that was, that was the track that we went down. And none of that exists, it's gone. I mean, it was, it was a prototype effectively and we completely rebuilt it and changed it. And we've done that a couple of times now throughout the life of the company. But I think what we've been talking to our team about is the zero to 1 million is this huge amount of brute force by a small number of people. The 1 to 10 million phase is a, a, a little bit of a larger group, but still very much a unnatural, heroic effort You got like 20 people that are a core to the company. They work around the clock. They're, you know, doing 10 different jobs, trying to force it to happen. You're still doing things that don't scale. Jump on an airplane to save a customer, you know, make a commitment. Like we will build this this month for you and then work around the clock to build this. Like all things that don't scale naturally, but we did them because that's what drove our company to where it is today. And now going from 10 to hundred is a completely different motion. And that that's a motion of building process and systems. And that's how we've thought about our company and the different phases we've been through. So when we kicked off this year in January, we said, okay, folks, this year is the year of process and systems. We are taking all the things that we used to brute force and we're going to going to round out the edges. We're going to polish it a little bit. We're going to make it smoother. We're going to make it more repeatable because we have 160 people. So it's not good enough if only 20 people can cross the chasm, the whole company's got to make it over the chasm. So that's, that's how we've thought about the different phases as it relates to product specifically. Um, I would say when it really clicked was early 2020 So we started out in 2017 and we built the wrong product. We built a marketplace. So we nailed the problem, but we just didn't think about the problem through the right lens. And so we launched this marketplace and started to try to connect manufacturers and buyers of machined parts and 3d printed parts and sheet metal parts. And, it really wasn't scaling. We we weren't achieving network effects. We didn't have enough money for customer acquisition and supplier acquisition on both sides. You really need that to generate any kind of significant network effect. And so instead of that, we ended up picking a side. We picked the manufacturers. We said, okay, the real problem is with the manufacturers. It'd be great if we could be this connective tissue between buyers and suppliers, but in reality, what we really care about is revolutionizing job shop manufacturing, contract manufacturing. We feel like that's crucial to the future of our country. So all right, we got to go focus on them. So we pivoted, we killed the marketplace. And I think that's a really interesting, it's really important to be able to do that. Like crumble it up, throw it out, start again, take what was good, what you learned, and then just keep going. And I think people get a little bit married to the sunk costs, and I, I don't know that that is that's productive. You can saddle yourself with incredible tech debt that doesn't scale. And so we crushed the marketplace, we threw it out. It's gone. We built a really, really ugly quoting tool. We got it funded by early customers that screamed for it. You know they were they were using our marketplace as a very hacky quoting tool. They were effectively pretending to be buyers and coming in and seeing the prices and using it to quote. And so we said, all right, you know, we'll build this for you, but we need the money up front, which I think was a really, it was a big validation piece for us that the problem was real and existed. And so we took their money. We went, we ran, we built the tool. We were able to raise more money because they liked the tool and they used it, even though it was terrible. And then we spent another two years, 2018, 2019, trying to find product market fit. We didn't, you know, we got close. And by 2020, it was it was incredible. Like we were at 200 grand in annual recurring revenue at the end of 2019. And we, I think we booked like 125,000 in Q1 of 2020. And we're like, oh my God, this dog hunts. We're like, this is unbelievable. Like we were closing like, I, I just remember we were closing like, a ten thousand dollar deal a quarter and we would celebrate that deal as if we were taking over the world and then it just doubled every single quarter from then on and it was i was like wow and i think a lot of things came together and clicked like i don't want to say it's just product market fit but it's a combination of the right product the right time COVID helped us a lot manufacturers realized they needed to be able to do their jobs from anywhere they realized that they needed modern technology they realized that you know they weren't um they weren't invincible to all the things that you know sickness challenges single points of failure they weren't immune to that stuff and we had a really good sales leader and all those things came together very nicely and we ran through 20 20- 2020, 2021, we were able to raise some money in 21, which was fantastic. We did a series A with a strategic investor, we did a series B with an awesome venture fund, OpenView. Um, and now we've been in this, how do we scale this mode? How do we how do we go to the next level? How do we keep the growth rate high? How do we grow efficiently? Um, because it's, it's easy to grow if you're willing to spend $2 to make a buck. Uh, but really, scaling—you you, gotta—that that equation needs to look a little bit different.
0: Let's dig into that into that kind of second phase um, of of scaling from, let's say, 200k to a million. Let's kind of dig a bit deeper there. Um, so you said you were adding that 100, 120, 150k per per quarter. I mean, how did it? Like, what were you doing to double it?
1: It, it was. I think there's a certain amount of, and this may just be me as a founder, but I've always, I've always felt like the product isn't good enough because I can see all warts. I mean, for the first three years, I was running the QA scripts in a, a, at two, three o'clock in the morning, clicking through every single button. I mean, I can still, I can navigate you through the product with my eyes closed. Like I know every button. I know exactly where it goes. I know what it does. Um, but you also then get to know where all the gaps are. So you get a bit of insecurity when it comes to pricing. So you just go out and you're like, well, you know, 300 bucks a month. We'll, we'll start there. And it's like, well, we spent $10 million building the software. It's, it should be worth more than $3 million or three, 300 a month. And so you finally start to get really confident around the value you create. And I think we had enough of a base of customers and we, we came up against a really big problem in the early days. Our customers while we loved them, they did not want to give us case studies because they did not want their competitors finding out about the tool. And so like, I remember sending out boxes of t-shirts and hats and like swag and hoping to get pictures on social media and thinking like, Oh my gosh, like this is going to be great. We're going to have momentum. And then it was like, did you guys get the box? And they're like, yeah, but, but we put it in the closet. Like we're not, we're not going to tell anybody about this. And we're like, wait, we just spent two hundred dollars on this swag. That's like almost a whole month of your subscription, you know? Like it's, it was crazy, and so, but by twenty twenty, it's almost like we had built enough momentum where we had the it was like we had the confidence in the product. We knew how much we could see how much value we were creating. We were watching orders scale exponentially. From our customers, we were watching them quote really, really fast. Like jobs that they had said it would take this would have taken me three days, they were doing in like five minutes. I mean, it was just astronomical value. And so we started to get a, a lot more confident around our pricing. And I think that confidence translates into sales very nicely. It's hard to go out and sell something if you're not confident in what it can do. But once you start to get a few of those wins under your belt, um you start to believe a little bit more. And I think that was a big, big game changer for us.
0: How did you figure out pricing and how did it evolve from day one?
1: Yeah, um, not well, um, poorly. So in the early days of paperless parts, we said, if you don't make money, we don't make money. And so what we said is we're going to take a percent of every order you win. And we thought that was a really good alignment model. We're never going to take money away unless our product is generating value for you as you're quoting. We also assumed it would scale nicely as our customers scale because when they go from a million in revenue to two million to five million, we, we thought, okay, well, we'll expand with them and it'll be a great partnership. So here's what, here's where we were wrong. So a couple of reasons: one, we watched our revenue stay flat for an entire year as we onboarded more customers. What is happening? Like losing my mind and. We started to look at it, like, there's no way Joe is only making 50,000 bucks a quarter. Like, how is it even possible? And so what it turned out to be was, I got on the phone with these customers, and I almost lost it at this point. I was like, man, I, this is not working. The, they would go around it. So they knew they were going to pay us a half a percent. And so for really large orders, they would just not enter the win into the system. And they would just mark it as lost. And they were like, I just, they was like, I can't see paying you two grand to like type in that we won this order. Like, that just doesn't make sense. And we're like, wait a second, but that was the deal. That was the partnership we had. Um, and so it took me a couple of weeks to get my head wrapped around that. And then I realized that human nature, it's just, that is human nature. If, if they have to go and actively do something that is then going to cost them money, and there's a way around it and that's just that's just the way people are going to do it. So then we switched and I think I think that also really hurt us from a sales perspective because a lot of people didn't understand that model. And looking back on it, taking a percent of sales it made it so that it was really really hard for our customers to plan their cash. And at the time we understood what being cash strapped meant. But we didn't understand how close to the line these customers ride it. These shops, they are coming out of pocket for metals. They have terrible cash operating cycles. The banks are raking them over the coals on really high interest rates. And so, that two grand, if if they didn't plan for that, we thought, okay, proportionately, that was a win there. But the reality is, we were charging them two grand and they were waiting 120 days to get paid. Wow. And so we were just making their situation worse whereas some sort of a fixed fee would be much better. Now, our customers didn't understand SaaS. So, that's just not a market that they've ever had to pay a SaaS fee. All the ERP systems they bought were perpetual licenses. That was just that was what they were used to. But we didn't want to build a perpetual license model. We said that's not right. So, we went to seats. We said okay, we'll do seats, and then human nature got us again. So <laughs> for really a sad. quarter, we did seats. Yeah, they just—they were like, "Well, we'll take one seat." And we're like, "Yeah, but you have three hundred people," and they're like, "No, no, but we'll just use—we're going to use one seat, and, and then maybe we'll go to two. And it was like one hundred twenty-five bucks a seat. And we're like, "Oh my god, this is never going to work." Yeah. So finally, we switched to a tier model, and we said, "Look, we have growth, pro, enterprise, and enterprise multi-site." We have features that really, truly align with what each of those size customers would need. And we're not going to undersell ourselves. And by, by making that decision, it allowed us, we wanted to stay true to the one or two person machine shop. We can support you. That means a lot to us. We like working with entrepreneurs, love, love helping businesses scale. So we've got a solution for them. And then we've got a solution for the 15 site, 500 people, large industrial manufacturer, but we really had to grow into that. And so in the early days, call it 2019, we only sold 300 bucks a month because we just did not have the solution. We didn't have user permissions. We didn't have any of the things that you need to be truly an enterprise level solution. And then 2020, we started to sell upstream a little bit more. So we added a, I think it was a thousand bucks a month. And then we had a $3,000 a month tier. But what we learned as we added these tiers in is bigger customers come with different types of problems. So one of the biggest things that we had to overcome is small shops will quote jobs that have four or five line items. And it's like, okay, well that, that scales well. It's scrollable. It's not crazy, but these big shops will quote 300 line items. And I mean, it crashed the whole system. Just like, it was just like a wilted flower falling over. I mean, it's like, okay, well, this the UI is terrible. It doesn't scale. You can't scroll. It was actually making it harder for them to do their jobs. So here we are. We think we have product market fit. We feel really good about it. We close the first few of them. And as we go upstream, product market fit definition changes. And I think, you know, you know it's really interesting. Um, and it's, it's maybe something I wish, I wish we had learned a little bit earlier, but it's a concept of ICP your ideal customer profile or your ideal customer persona, I, that's that's a term that was fairly new to me, um, you know, over the last 24 months. And getting some real discipline around that, um, that, that was a game changer for us. But as we try to expand our ICP, we're constantly in search of product market fit. So if we want to go work with, finishing shops, or if we want to go work with another type of manufacturing operation, we have to redefine what product market fit looks like for them. And then we need to go try to achieve that. Um, And we're getting a little bit more disciplined around that process now.
0: So how do you, when do you decide to change an ICP or to add a new one?
1: You know, it's, it's interesting because we've set a definition of ICP that we are, we have a high level of conviction around when we get strong pull like we just got pulled into a shop um last month that they're like yep we'll pay one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year and we're like okay tell me more about this so but now we're now we're like we're like a a real boy so we're all grown up we've got services people we have really awesome customer experience team so Instead of what we used to do, which is just sell the deal and then hope we can figure out how to implement it, we said, no, 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 wait a sec. We took our team, we put them on site, we scoped every single step of their process, we mapped it to our product, we made sure that we set clear expectations, and then we went out, we sold the deal. So now we're going to go implement that deal over the next eight weeks. Then we're going to watch them be successful. And if they are truly successful with our product and there aren't a lot of zombies that pop up, like, wait a second, you can't do this? That's like, we just expected that it would, you know, walk on water. Um, You know, once that happens, then we will go back and expand our ICP. And I think maybe this is one of the benefits of being really undisciplined in the early days. We figured out a way to make a very broad set of customers successful. Now, we've narrowed our ICP to a small subset of those customers, but our product team has the ability to go to these other types of manufacturing operations and learn from them. What do you like? What do you dislike? If you need, if it, you know, it's better than what you used to do, which was pen and paper, but to make it perfect, what do we have to do? And so we're constantly going and we're evaluating the cost benefit analysis of doing so. And you do a TAM analysis and you try to understand, you know, are you still able to grow fast enough with your existing ICP, things like that.
0: But how, how do you balance that with, with focus in mind, right? I mean, if you're doing one ICP, like, why wouldn't you just say, like, you know what, screw it, let's, let's get 10 mil with this ICP in ARR, like specifically, let's say Amazon e-commerce shops, we're just putting out something random, right? And then it's like, all right, that's really what we like. You know what I mean? Like, how do you balance that? Because, you know, you as a founder, your time is super limited. You know, you're a small team, like jumping to another ICP is like, ugh. you know, I see it internally in in our case, right?
1: Yeah, it is a really, really challenging question. I mean, it's, I think the first thing I ask the team is how much overlap is there? Because if it's like we need to add one feature, like I'll give you an example, finishing shops. Today, it's really simple. We quote quantities. Finishing shops, shops, they quote in lots. Okay, so we have to change the product to quote in lots. We're not gonna do that right this second because we're staying focused, but we know the massive majority of the circle overlaps and there's like three or 4% that's a little bit different that we need to go change to expand our ICP meaningfully. So being disciplined around that analysis is really important. I agree, focus. One of the challenges that we face specifically in the manufacturing industry, we are selling to companies that have been around for 30, 40, 50, 80 years. And so the timing is absolutely critical for them. So it's not like you build the right product and all of a sudden they just snap their fingers and they're ready to change. It's really, really relationship-driven selling. It's when the business is changing over to new ownership. So you can get to a point of where if your growth rate slows, which we've been very fortunate, knock on wood, we don't have to go chase new ICP. We're more focused on building features that upsell into our ICP. Um, But watch that growth rate. If the growth rate slows meaningfully, if the pipeline creation slows meaningfully, you have to ask yourself, is it our process? Is it our people? Or is it
0: actually the ICP is tapped? Understood. Um, Yeah. I always find that a huge challenge. It's kind of like, when is the, when is the right time to think of different ICPs? You know what I mean? Like, is it, is it up to one mil? Is it, you know what I mean? I feel like, like, how do you feel about that in terms of scale?
1: I think it depends on, it it really depends. I don't think I was, I don't think I was ever disciplined enough there, but I think it really depends on the market size. So if you have captured 0.5% of your market and you're not going out and competing with anybody, you're kind of undisciplined if you're running around trying to create new ICPs and build features for it. That's just, you don't have product market fit. I think that's a really good indication of it. Does that make sense?
0: No, no, yeah, yeah, I see that. Um, And then moving on, moving on to one or two last questions, what was your biggest difficulty in, in scaling? Like, where do Hmm. you see? Because you guys, right? So it's kind of like, are you dealing with primarily smaller business, enterprise businesses, a mix of both? Like, you know, what did it look like from a product perspective, a sales perspective, a runway perspective, right?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So We are in this scaling phase, this like building process phase right now. I think in the early days of this, so call it, you know, the five to seven, five to seven, five, right in that phase, we're hiring a lot of people and it was onboarding, hiring and onboarding. So how do you get people, bring them in when there are no systems, there's no documentation, there's, you're bringing them into... An organization, and you're kind of just throwing bodies at a problem, and so we really had to. We decided on Confluence, and we just put everything in Confluence. We got really disciplined around making it so that a new person can come to our organization, and they actually know what the heck is going on. And then we said, okay, now that we have everything documented, and everybody knows where to look for the, you know, every question that you have, there should be an answer. Well, now we need to start building processes. So, can't try to Build the perfect process right out of the gate uh, because it's just not going to happen. So, rather than optimizing for perfect, we just built processes that were good enough. And then we've continued to iterate on those processes over and over again. So, we run them, we measure them for a quarter, we go back and we iterate over again. And so, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now in terms of scaling is making sure that we have efficiency in our business where we need the efficiency, if that makes sense. So like right now, the sales team, customer acquisition, that needs to be a really efficient engine in the market because VCs are not throwing $100 million your way to go you know, spend $2 to capture a dollar in
0: ARR. What are parts of the organization that are just not as important in prioritizing scale and that they, it just has to suffer? compared to other parts. So if you say you're investing in sales, what, where's the trade-off?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really, that's a good question. Good question. I, I think <laughs> that, the, well, yeah. yeah, the constraint, the constraint is constantly moving. So last year it was efficiently hiring. So everything suffered and we focused really on building this hiring engine where we could successfully hire onboard train people. We're not focused on that right now at all. Like that's not, that's not an area that is really all that important because we've staffed up the organization. So the constraint now is more around how do we trust but verify? How do we put a process in place like MedPick and make sure that everybody knows how to use Salesforce and can track the utilization of that tool? Onboarding choked us last year. We closed so many customers. We could barely get them all on board set up and successful. So we went and we invested really heavily in the onboarding process. And it's interesting. It's like this constraint moves around the business. So you end up being really focused on one area and then sales picks up and it's like, okay, well now we got to go make onboarding more efficient. And now we got to focus the engineering team on either improving onboarding or if sales are down, we got to go Make product that we can sell and upsell to our customers, and it's it's a constantly sliding constraint. At least that's it, my experience. It hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been black and white.
0: Yeah, I see that. In my my first company, customer support would always suffer, um, where they would expect you to do more with less.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I I would guess, I don't know if they necessarily feel that way, but I also have a couple of like like very early company champions in customer support right now. And they are, they are likely doing heroic acts that would not scale. Um, you know, the fact that they can manage 200 customers each is heroic, but yeah, um, yeah I think that might be, that's a, that's a good example.
0: Yeah. 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 It's always tough. It's always tough that trade off. Um, I actually find the, the 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 definitely the hardest thing is just scaling the team, and it's something I hate doing. Ideally, you try to keep the team as small as possible. Um, how do you feel about that's That's my last question, actually. How do you feel about hiring people in light of a potential decrease in efficiency? And when is when is too, when is when is it too much hiring? Or do you not see that problem where there where there there isn't a decrease in efficiency? Efficiency goes up.
1: I think. Guess- Yeah, that is a really, really good question. We are, I think we're discovering that right now. So we're at 160 people. It's a lot of humans, Um, a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of people to get running in the same direction, working collaboratively um, without the efficiency completely dropping off. We're not, until we have processes where we see them being efficiently run and executed, we're not adding more people to that we just, we've made that decision. We're going to take the, take the team that we have, learn how to play as a team, drive the efficiency before we go and add more. You're adding, you're adding a new element to the problem. So but have, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if we did it the right way or not.
0: Yeah. But have you found adding people make you faster?
1: I have found that adding experienced people makes us go a lot faster. So like last year we hired a CMO. He is phenomenal. We hired an SVP of sales at the end of the year last year. He is phenomenal. We hired an SVP of engineering in January. He has been here for like 40 days and he's blown my mind. And so bringing in, the, I, it's funny because when you're sitting there as an entrepreneur and you're looking at your bank account, And you're thinking about really expensive executives and you're like, oh, my God, like, I'll just get the I'll get the more junior person and and I'll lean in a little bit heavier and our burn rate won't be as high and is such a fallacy. Getting really, really experienced senior executives is unbelievable for the organization. Because without it, you know, you got a missile, you got all these young people that are super motivated and hungry and they'll work their asses off, but there's no guidance system for the missile. So it's like, where's the, where's the thing going? They're running into each other. They're, you know, they're making mistakes. They're stepping on each other's code. It's you name it. Um, So having, having really senior people in place, they, they just, they've seen this, they've seen this show before and they know how to make it happen. So I think we were really lucky with those tires.
0: Yeah, the, the worst mistakes that I have made have definitely been hires. Um, yeah. some, sometimes, you know, you just you want to save 10K per year or whatever it is or, you know, something stupid like that. And then you just you pay a lot more than that, how much you've saved. So I couldn't agree more. Um, it was hard last, for me last, to learn sorry. to trust my gut there. I was just
1: say it's hard, hard to learn how to trust your gut there um, until you've done it a couple of times.
0: Yeah, it's true. I guess you got to screw up a bit or you have to just realize the value of paying somebody that, you know, two, two, three times higher salary than anybody else in the company. And then you're like, oh, (laughs) you know, it's definitely. Yeah, there's a reason. Yeah, there's a reason they cost that much. Um, They're not, you know, so yeah. Uh, Last question. You keep saying it's the last question but this conversation. This is actually definitely one of the most interesting conversations I've had by the um. I also don't know much about manufacturing itself but my last final question any final thoughts for those searching or let's say going past phase one of product market fit?
1: Um, I think the best thing that we did in this entire business was we found a real problem and I think when you find a really really painful problem it makes, um, you get a lot of at-bats. You know, you get get an opportunity to build a product that's maybe not 100% perfect because you are solving a really, really painful problem. And, And what I mean by that is if you're going out and you're trying to just incrementally improve something, you have to do a you have to be really really freaking good as a product but if you're going from taking someone who's got a piece of paper and a pencil and you're giving them a high powered computer system like the system doesn't really have to be that good to be better than what they were doing today and so i think the most like the best thing that i could ever point to is that we found a true important urgently needed to solve problem and we built oxygen for that problem you know like we 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 figured out a way to solve that um so i think if people are struggling and they're feeling like they're struggling with product market fit i wouldn't as much look at the product as a first place i would look at the problem they think they're solving and try to determine like are you a vitamin are you a painkiller or are you oxygen And Jay Batson, um, one of the founders of Acquia said that to me in the very early days of paperless parts. And that, that really stuck with me. It was, you know, it's like, what are you? You know, and I I think that, I think doing that analysis can really help you determine why you're struggling to find product market fit.
0: Yeah, I love that. Actually, that is great. Um, That's exactly what we were struggling with as well. It's like, what the the ideal icp wasn't the ideal icp and the product was the same and ultimately that icp did not have that problem we were trying to solve with that product and therefore we didn't solve that problem then once we moved to the icp that was able to like or essentially had that problem the product just stuck and we've been you know we're on the path now to a million so that's awesome
1: yeah, yeah it's it's really it's really really hard it finding a true problem if you've never lived it it's also really hard it's really easy to be we force our whole team to be in manufacturing operations on a regular basis because it's really easy to be a room full of 20 and 30 somethings solving problems for 50 somethings that are in the middle of the country that you've never walked in their shoes you've never been in their shop you've never seen how their processes are so when we hire new people, we send them out to shops and it is eye-opening. We will send them to the most advanced shop we work with and we will send them to the least advanced mm-hmm. shops we work with. And sometimes they're like, oh my God, like they make parts that go into Boeing airplanes. That's incredible. <laughs> you know, it's 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 really eye-opening, but that, that creates a level of empathy that I think is really important and that a level of customer concentricity, which is really important. Customer centricity, rather. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, fifth and millionth uh, last question. Uh, any reading materials for those, for those out there searching?
1: Um, in general, or product market fit reading? Either um, you know, actually. Why not? Yeah. So I read um, one of the books that we just read as a team was Extreme Ownership. Um. So Jocko. I'm a big fan of Jocko. I, I, I like that. I think that's super important, especially as you're scaling up a company. Um, we really like the culture code. Thought that was great. Um, radical candor, I think, is super important. There was another um, I'm trying to remember what the what the author's name was, but it was it was a book about UX and UI. Don't make me think, which I thought was really interesting. One of the premises that took away from there was just counting clicks. Like it's such an underutilized tool to understand the pain of UI and yet people still design products where they don't, they don't literally count all the clicks. Um, So yeah, it's uh, I'm trying to think of other books I've gotten inspired and empowered. Marty Kagan's books um, sitting behind me. Um, Yeah.
0: Books by I Eel. This is, I think, the best book on product market fit. It's like 120 pages. It's basically about the psychology of, of why certain products are habit-forming and why others aren't. And you basically hm. take these people through a loop. It's like a trigger. It's like you make an investment. You have a variable reward. So sometimes reward happens. Sometimes it doesn't then there's the fourth one and then it just goes and it's the whole spin. So it's like, why do you go on Facebook? You feel lonely, you're bored, you go there, you you post something, or Instagram, then you get a like, how many likes do you get? So it's a variable reward up or down. Every time you invest in the product, then you're more likely to stay in that product. You know what I mean? Definitely would recommend that. Really, really good book. Um, Sounds
1: very similar to product-led onboarding. Have you ever read that before? So there's product-led growth and product-led onboarding written by the same author. The product-led onboarding book changed the way I think about onboarding our product because it's all about what you just said. It's it's getting the little virtuous cycles, like achieving those little aha moments of value. And it just can you continue to build momentum as the user goes in, does something, sees the aha, does the next thing, aha, and it continues to build that adoption. We would have users wait all the way to the end of onboarding to start actively using our product. And we completely flipped that on its head. We said, no, day one, you you start sending quotes. Even if it's ugly, even if it doesn't work well, just type the numbers in, do it, get used to it. The firm, one of their customers calls them and they're like, wow, your new quotes look awesome. It's that like a light bulb goes off and we get that much more positive reinforcement for the change, a lot of change management.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm definitely gonna read that. I um, I think onboarding is probably, like you said, I think that's like the art. The USP of my first company, which was an online bank for small businesses, was being able to get onboarded very quickly. So if you can open an account in ten minutes versus you know ten days or you know two months or whatever it is at, at a traditional bank, and so our team focused for the first two years—I'm not kidding, literally two years—on just ironing out that onboarding, and we went from lead, and I'm talking just leaving an email to a customer. Was at seventy percent, um, so anywhere between fifty to seventy percent ultimately. But that that was like onboarding was just so critical to get right, and we threw people at it, we threw everything at it. Um, I look at it same now, and in, in my in, in my comp- in my medical company, right. So onboarding is just such a critical part to activation, and you know even and even LTV, I think you know what I mean it's kind of directly correlated. How well somebody's onboarded is related to how much they say and how much they spend. So. And we
1: had to go back upstream into sales to fix the problem because we weren't setting the expectations for onboarding the right way. Mm. And I think as soon as we flipped it on its head and during the sales cycle, we're like, no, you're going to show up and you're going to start using this tool day one <laughs> customers came ready to play and it was totally different, but it, it, it required a pivot all the way back upstream. Um, so yeah, I'll talk to you off about this stuff. I love it. It's a, yeah. uh, it's a, it's, it's fun. A lot
0: of... All right. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Like I said, this is definitely one of my favorite chats that I've had so far. Um, so I mean, yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, any, any final comments?
1: No, I, I, I really, uh, I appreciate you having me here and, um, that's it's definitely fun to talk about, fun to, fun to think back on and reflect on. I, you know, I think the last thing, last thing I would just share is, There is a, one of the biggest things that we struggled with was change. Like people adopting new products, that are changing a behavior and people don't like change. And I think there is a equation that everyone needs to do for themselves and for their product. And it is the perception of change to the perception of value. And that equation, and the word perception is critical. Because it's irrelevant if you create tremendous value or it is irrelevant if your onboarding is super easy if the perception is it's going to be really hard. So the perception of the amount of change to the perception of the amount of value, it's gotta be like a one to 10 at least. And that, that was a big thing for us to figure out. And as soon as we figured it out, that solved a lot of problems for us. That ratio is a critical one to get right. This doesn't matter if you watch your customers and you're like, you're going to double your revenue. If they don't believe it, the perceived value is not there.
0: Um, Do
1: you have time? Can we elaborate on that? Yeah. 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 So, so, so we sit there and we do these ROIs for our customers in the early days and we build out the ROI and we say, okay, your business is going to grow by X and all you have to do is you're going to pay us, $10,000, and you're going to go through eight weeks of onboarding, right? And we would say, this is a no-brainer. Like, this should be, like, you shouldn't even be thinking twice about this. But then the customer's sitting there, and in their mind, they're thinking, oh, my God, we don't know how to adopt software. We're about to change one of the most risky parts of our business, which is estimating. We've The last time we tried to adopt software, they told us it was eight weeks, and it took us a year, and that perceived pain change is so, so dramatic. They're thinking, oh my gosh, like if I send a bad quote out of the system, I could lose a customer. The risk is so high. So you're continuing to add points to that side of perceived change. So what a lot of people do is they focus on selling the value. So they keep going in and they keep Hitting on you're gonna grow by 10%, you're gonna grow by 20%, we're gonna save you all this money, we're gonna save you all this time. And what we had to learn was we had to learn how to attack the perception of change. So now it's like, no, you're gonna have a dedicated person, they're gonna train you, we're gonna introduce you to another customer who just went through it, they're gonna be a reference for you. And we started to reduce that that ratio of that perceived change to the perceived value. And on the perceived value side, we had a lot of case studies, we had a lot of references, we had the ability to say, this isn't just Jason bullshitting you into thinking you're going to grow by 20%, you grow by five. No, this is like five other shops that have raised their hand and said they've grown by 100% using our product. So the perception of value increases with that momentum. But that's an important ratio to get real with yourself about. And when you, when you don't close deals and you feel like you don't have product market fit, Ask that prospect what that what the ratio is for them. It's a I, I was eye opening for me.
0: That is fucking brilliant. <laughs> that's really smart. I love that. Um, so in in what you're saying is that change should be at you know from a scale of difficulty zero, let's say one to ten, changes at one value needs to be a ten. In other words, that's the ideal ratio. It,
1: it has to be a ten x. So if the if and, and the thing that people mess up is. They're like, oh, well, it's a two on change, and we're still a 10 on value. No, you, you just effed up the equation. It needs to be a 20 now on value. One tick up in change. It is a one to 10 ratio. So that perception of change, how hard is it? It's like I always tell my, I tell my product team this. I used to live in this apartment in Boston. And they went, it used to be you walked in the building and the con like the person at the front desk would get your packages. This is like really stupid and it makes me sound bad, but it's a very human nature. So the person would go get your package and they hand it to you. So then one day they're like, oh, we're rolling out this new system and you're going to get a text message and you got to walk up and you got to type in this number and you got to go into a room and you got to get your package yourself and you got to walk back upstairs. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, this is this sucks. You're changing my whole routine. I would walk in. I would say, Joe, I think I got a package. Joe would go get my package. It was so easy. Like, never was I sitting there thinking, oh, I had to wait for four people for Joe to come back or Joe wasn't at the front desk when we needed him. I didn't perceive that as a problem. So they bring in this new system. So I hated this system for like four months. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is actually really easy. This is great. But that perception of change to the perception of value was totally off. Doesn't matter that it was a better system at all. I hated it and I hated the apartment for it because they changed my routine and humans hate change. So if you're changing the way someone's going to do something, if you're adding clicks to their life, that are those are points that you're adding to that change column. The value's gotta go up exponentially.
0: That's a really good example. Um... Yeah, that, they sold the change really bad compared to, to – the, they sold both the value and the change. You saw, you know, terrible value, terrible change. Yeah,
1: it was awful. It was, but, but had they gone back and explained the value there, maybe it, maybe it would have been different. But humans hate change. They really – it's just – it is in our system. We do not like change. And uh, I think a lot of people are – you get so familiar with your product. We were like, this is easy. You just click these 87 times and you get all this value after clicking all these times. It's like, no, that's not good. That's terrible, actually. So yeah, yeah, for what it's worth.
0: No, no, that's brilliant. Like I said, that was like, wow. (laughs) I'm going to go back to the team now, check out our website. Like, What is our change to value ratio? Uh, we do a bunch of interviews on our website in the flow with, you know, different customers and users and whatever people we don't know. And like, that's definitely one question I'm going to be asking. Um, awesome. So that's huge. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks thanks for for having me. me. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. So um, it was good to meet you. Yeah. Thanks. Let's, let's pretend we've stopped recording. Awesome. What do you think we missed? How do you think that went? I think it went great.
1: Um, it's, it's funny because my, my director of product just came in, um, like weeks ago and he's like, do you think we have product market fit? And I'm like, well, I don't know. How do you define product market fit? Like, what are you thinking? So he's out there. It's, it's, it's very real for us every day. Like he's out there, he's doing research, he's pulling analytics, we're getting net promoter scores from different segments of customers. We're trying to figure out, you know, like there's so many different rule books out there for it. Um, so I don't I don't necessarily know that we missed anything, but I also don't know that there is a right answer to this problem. Because for every industry, you know, as much as we all wish we could be Cal and Lee or be a, you know, a product led growth where they just achieve this. Amazing, easy fit, and people use it every day um a lot of industries are very different
0: so yeah that's it's refreshing to hear that from from you though I mean, just given you you guys are a series b company, you know thirty mil raise at this round right so all that stuff it's just kind of like that's it is refreshing you know it's just kind of like I feel like there's never a perfect like you know you'll never have a hundred percent repeatable model, nothing will ever be perfect, so it's kind of like it's true. You know what I mean? It's like, um, it, it, it's a refreshing and humble way to look at product market fit, but obviously, you know, you still got to scale and do, do your thing, right? But it's a never ending process at the end of the day. I think that's my biggest takeaway from this, uh, from this call. So I do,
1: I do a customer executive bridge with like, so it's either me, our CRO, our SVP of sales. We do executive bridges for the deals we close. And then I talk to every customer after they go through onboarding. And what I promise the customers before they start onboarding, like right before they sign the deal, I promise them two things. Software is never perfect. It's not going to be. You're going to find things you don't like. I'm going to make you this promise right now. And it's never done. It's never going to be done. So it's going to be changing. We're going to be releasing new code. We're going to be working on it. Because the second it's done, it's dead. And if we thought it was perfect, you shouldn't work with us. Just like if any other software vendor tells you that,
0: they're full of shit. Yeah, it's spot on. Yeah, it's always yeah. That is. It has to. Yeah. Yeah, 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 especially for that type of crowd as well, which is just isn't a software crowd either. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, good good talk.